You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey, and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in medical imaging at RCH. I'm joined today by two members of the RCH Haematology team. Janine Fermedge is a clinical nurse consultant, and Dr. Chris Barnes is a consultant haematologist in the clinical haematology department. Today we're going to talk about haemophilia and a new treatment that has been around for the last year or so, providing some really good benefits to children, their families, and even the treating clinicians. Welcome, Janine and Chris. Hi there. Thanks for having us, Steve. No problem. So, guys, let's start. What's haemophilia? Haemophilia is a bleeding disorder where the blood doesn't clot properly, and it's due to not having enough of either clotting factor 8 or clotting factor 9, and so people with haemophilia have a lifelong bleeding tendency. And how is it diagnosed? Steve, it's normally diagnosed after a, a, a patient presents with uh, symptoms of increased bruising or bleeding. Um, that's, the, that's the first time that they come to our attention. And we do a variety of blood tests. And many of the audience, the clinicians will know what the blood tests are. They're coagulation screening tests that we do in the laboratory. But effectively, we aim to isolate the deficiency of the protein in the laboratory using the coagulation screening tests. That's how we diagnose it in our laboratory, and then we send off some other samples off to the DNA lab to actually look at the gene changes that result in, uh, in, in the mutation leading to the, the, the presentation. Do you ever get any one where you kind of know when they're about to be born, like in terms of genetic testing and stuff like that, that they have haemophilia? Yeah, because it's an inherited disorder. It's a, what we call an X-linked recessive disorder, so mums pass it on to their boys. Many families that we know, uh, obviously, in the stage of having extending their families and, and having children, and so we work with the parents when their mother is pregnant, and we're able to liaise with the obstetricians that when a baby boy is born, we can be pretty proactive in trying to understand whether or not that boy does or doesn't have haemophilia uh, shortly after birth. There is the opportunity for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, so that is available in Victoria, and some parents choose to go down that route. I'm very surprised to hear, though, that boys are more effective given that it's an X chromosomal problem. Is it, is, how does, I don't understand how that works. Yeah, there, there are cases where girls um, are born with haemophilia. Yeah. Um, it, can be, it can occur in very rare instances where the father uh, has haemophilia and he has a baby with a woman who carries haemophilia. Right. And so a girl would be homozygous haemophilia, would have two genes yep. leading to the presentation of haemophilia in girls. But the much more common scenario is because girls have two X chromosomes, there is a concept of lionization where one X chromosome is more active than the other. Now, if that, if that X chromosome is the X chromosome that results in haemophilia, yeah. then as a res- the, the result is that there can be an absolute deficiency of factor eight or factor nine in that girl. So girls definitely can have haemophilia. And that's been a bit of a change over probably the last 15 or 20 years. We're changing the language around um, the diagnosis of haemophilia in girls. It was typically associated, like, like as you said, that it's only a male disease. That's, that's not in fact the case. Yeah, right. Okay. So there's obviously varying levels of clotting factor. Now, at what percentage of a normal clotting factor would we consider someone to be classified as having haemophilia? So we classify the normal range for factor 8 or factor 9 between 50% to 200%. 
and then varying severities of haemophilia. So less than 1% of fat diuretic or fat denying means you've got severe haemophilia. Between 1% and 5% means you have moderate haemophilia and then greater than 5%. Up to about 40% is considered to be mild haemophilia. And even though those numbers kind of tell us the classification of the severity, sometimes there's variation within the individual. So you might have somebody with moderate haemophilia who might have kind of symptoms more like severe or they might lean more towards mild type symptoms. So it's kind of a combination of factors, including the actual level. Yeah. Okay. And there are different types of haemophilia, right? There's like, there's an A and there's a B. Yeah. So haemophilia A is more common than haemophilia B. And haemophilia A is where you're missing factor H and haemophilia B is where you're missing factor 9. And why do they call haemophilia B Christmas disease? Uh, that's kind of um, a long time ago the, the, as a little boy in the 1950s um, and when he was five years old, um, he was diagnosed with haemophilia B. At the time, they thought haemophilia was caused just by a deficiency of factor VIII. Yeah. But he presented with the same symptoms and, in fact, was found that he had um, a low level of factor IX and his name was Stephen Christmas. Uh, and so that's why it's known as Christmas disease. So it has nothing to do with actual Christmas. Nothing <laughs> to do with Christmas or presents. Uh, and there's also another one that I've heard of, another bleeding disorder called von Willebrand disease. How does this differ from haemophilia? Yeah, this is, yeah, Steve, this is a very different bleeding disorder. So um, von Willebrand's uh, factor is a protein that circulates in the blood um, and it is involved in the first part of hemostasis or primary hemostasis. And um, a deficiency in that factor, whether or not it's a deficiency in the factor or indeed it's a deficiency in the function of the factor, can lead to a bleeding disorder. Von Willebrand's uh, disease is associated with a different type of bleeding pattern because of the different proteins that are involved. And it very much involves mucosal bleeding, so um, epistaxis or blood noses, mouth bleeding. And in girls, it's menorrhagia because von Willebrand's disease does affect girls um, with the same proportion as it does affect uh, boys. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very common bleeding disorder, said to occur in about up to 1% of the population. So it is, it is much more common than haemophilia. Yeah, okay. So I've done a very, very small amount of research into haemophilia, and I swear I didn't ask my wife about this, who's a haematology registrar, who these guys obviously both know. So correct me if I'm wrong. So in haemophilia A, there's a lack of coagulation factor 8, which we have established already, but normally factor 8 interacts with factor 9 to activate factor 10. Am I right? That's right. And that, le- that leads to the th- what we call the thrombin burst, which is the generation of thrombin uh, to convert fibrinogen to fibrin. That's exactly right. We'll make a haematologist of you yet. <laughs> What was the standard treatment for haemophilia? Yeah, so the standard treatment for haemophilia for many, many years has been you replace the factor eight that the, the factor that the person's missing. So for haemophilia A, you replace the factor H, um, and for haemophilia B, you replace the factor nine. Yeah, okay. Are there any issues with using this treatment, or what were the issues with using the treatment? Well, the main challenge, so for haemophilia B, it's still the standard treatment is to replace the factor. The issues with using this treatment is it's got to be given through a vein, um, and children with severe haemophilia, uh, they usually start to have bleeding problems from quite a young age when they start to toddle around. You know, they're beautifully chubby toddlers, and at that time is when they need to have this treatment and we need to find a vein. And for most kids with severe haemophilia, they would start on preventative treatment, so giving treatment a couple of times a week through a vein. So that's a challenge, finding yeah. veins. So that means that for little children needing to start regular treatment, we put in a central venous access device like an infuser port. Yeah. And then we teach the parents how to give that. So that's pretty challenging. 
Um, and then eventually the parents learn how to access a peripheral vein and then the older boys learn how to self-infuse. So that's one of the main challenges that has been traditionally with that treatment. And, and challenging enough, the fact that of even just the process of even getting a port into a patient anyway, you know, with the, particularly with the younger patient, well, at least most of the patients here at the hospital would have to have a general anaesthetic to have that in. That's ex- absolutely right. Yeah. So it's surgery and because they're missing clotting factor, they need to stay in for a few days to have the factor replaced so that they don't bleed yeah. because of the surgery. Yeah, right. And I guess the, the other main issue with the treatment is that Particularly for factor H, you can develop an antibody to the factor H. So 30% of people with haemophilia A, mainly in young children, can develop an antibody to the factor H so it no longer works. And that creates an issue because they have much more frequent bleeding and we need to use other agents called bypassing agents, so such as a factor 7. And those products don't work as well as factor H. So it creates a whole other problem with haemophilia if you develop an antibody to the standard treatment. Yeah, right. Okay, so let's talk now about the new treatment and how that works. So the new treatment is uh, called Hemlibra. That uh, it's a medication. It's called a bi-specific antibody. So it's a monoclonal antibody, and the way it works is as you've articulated, bringing factor nine, factor ten together to produce thrombin or that thrombin burst, and it does that by bridging the gap where factor eight would normally be. Yeah. And so by bridging that gap, leading to the thrombin burst, it can be used for patients with haemophilia A, so it doesn't work for patients with haemophilia B. The real advance early on for us was that it could be used in patients with inhibitors, the antibodies that Janine mentioned. Yeah. Um, And it's uh, revolutionised their lives. Those patients have significantly more bleeding episodes because they can't use factor VIII. I know the word transformative gets thrown around in healthcare quite a lot, but I'm convinced that this was transformative for the patients that we were looking after. It's um, it's such an amazing um, thing to be involved in where these kids are getting out of wheelchairs, they're going to school, they're having this medication and um, it's, you know, it's a real pleasure to be part of really. Oh, that is amazing to hear. As far as the patients and their families are concerned, how is the treatment different for them? So it's a very interesting question because um, we thought, oh, going from intravenous treatment to a treatment that's a subcutaneous injection under the skin, kind of like, interesting, we thought that'd be super easy compared to having to access a vein. But actually, it's still a needle. For lots of kids, it's been really challenging, particularly little kids, like having a subcutaneous needle is painful mm-hmm. and they find that really challenging. And we spent many years kind of um, using lots of techniques to help kids deal with intravenous medication, so anaesthetic cream, all those kind of things are really helpful for managing pain in that situation, um, but not so good for subcutaneous injections. So lots of advantages in that it can be given every week or every two weeks or every four weeks, like a different schedule uh, can be um, pushed out to four weeks, as opposed to, say, factor eight, you're giving probably a couple of times a week in haemophilia A. So that's a great advantage. Yeah. So this medication, it's really great for bleed prevention. So we think it gives an equivalent factor eight level. Chris was talking about how it bridges a factor nine to 10. We think it gives an equivalent factor eight level of around 10 to 20%. So it doesn't make it completely normal, but Mm -hmm. it pushes them into a more mild haemophilia. So that's much better for the families and their kids too. It gives them better protection. And so at what stages would you have to do it? Like give it every two weeks compared to say every four weeks? Good question. So when we start kids on this medication, we um, start a lo- loading process to get the drug levels up to the um, 
level that we want them to be. So that's weekly for every four weeks. Right. And then they go into maintenance and it's either weekly every two weeks or every four weeks. And we're finding that, so this is a new thing for kids and parents to learn. So we find most families choose every two weeks because it's kind of enough for them to develop the skills to give the injection and become familiar with it. But then we have an increasing number of um, kids that are looking to go to every four weeks. The difference between that is if you give it every two weeks, but then you want to give it every four weeks, it's double the dose, so double the volume. Yeah. Um, so for many children that are not fussed by the injection, the volume doesn't change how it feels. Sometimes parents are a bit worried by that, but um, we find that if kids are quite distressed by the injections, going to every four weeks has actually been really helpful. Yeah, okay. And as far as hospital stays are concerned with the new treatment, is there, is there any hospital stay in some cases? As Janine mentioned, we're, the, the level goes up to 10 or 20%. Yeah. These kids, we still expect the children to bleed. There will still be uh, episodes of trauma-related bleeding where they'll need to come in, and we, we, we still have patients coming in requiring additional factor on top of the hemlibra to, to treat a bleed. But I suppose the at, at very high level, the frequency and the duration, the complications of hospital stays has fallen away dramatically. Yeah, okay. So what about clinicians? How is the new treatment different for them? Haemophilia is largely an outpatient um, disorder, uh, really through the, the work of um, my predecessor, Professor Henry Eckert, and, and his generation of haemophilia treatment um, doctors and, and treatment centre staff. They were able to establish haemophilia as largely an outpatient disorder, meaning that parents through intravenous infusions, portacas, et cetera, were able to manage this at home. So clinicians, as a result, in the 80s and 90s, got somewhat de-skilled around haemophilia, right. and, it be- and it became much less common to see patients as inpatients, really, because and that was transformative in itself, and patients being able to manage it at home instead of being hooked up to infusions in hospital for days. So in terms of the, the clinicians in the community, I, I don't think it'll change dramatically because of that outpatient perspective. What, what might change is that um, because the boys aren't getting uh, uh, educated to give themselves infusions, it may mean that they need to come into the emergency department more often than they had been to actually treat bleeds. So we're able to treat all the bleeds, all the outpatients at, at home, now, because we're we're preventing bleeds, but we're not going to prevent all bleeds, and they don't have the skills to infuse themselves, they may come into the emergency department uh, slightly more frequently. So we're just working through that because it's really a bit of a change in the model of care of haemophilia, um, where patients will still need to be engaged through emergency department. Yeah, um, but I don't think from from my colleagues in uh, not only in haematology but in other subspecialties, haemophilia is is largely a, an outpatient disorder. It's very subspecialised within um, the Children's Hospital Haemophilia Treatment Centre. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot more about bleeds in, uh, in our next haemophilia podcast, which we're going to be doing soon. I assume that there's still a lot of research going into the use of hemlever or um, the more generic term, emisuzumab. What do you know about the current research being conducted in the area? We're focusing on um, the role of emisuzumab in and sports. That's that's one area because we're we've got a um, we've now got a product which results in a factor eight level which is stable at around ten to twenty percent. Our focus on is is that enough 
or boys to participate in all of the sporting activities. So just going back to the previous treatment, we were able to give a dose of factor eight or factor nine prior to an episode of playing basketball or playing football, and those levels would be quite high for the time that the patient would be running around on the pitch or on the on basketball court. Emisuzumab doesn't do that. It's a very flat line. Mm-hmm. So we're wanting to know um, whether or not it's enough. Our preliminary pilot data suggests that it definitely is enough, but we want to extend that to um, uh, some international collaboration to confirm that that uh, is a safe way to manage these boys because, uh, as we all know, we want, we want boys, we want children to be out participating in sports for all the positive reasons that are associated with it. Yeah, that's a fascinating. And obviously, you know, we established this before that, that Emmy Sousa, it works for haemophilia A, not haemophilia B. Right. What else can you tell me about that? So, um, so the emisuzumab 2 is a preventative treatment, as Chris mentioned, if kids with haemophilia A who are on emisuzumab have a bleed or an injury, they still need treatment with Factor, um, but they'll have far fewer bleeds than they would have if they'd been on um, Factor treatment. But the kids with haemophilia B, they still require intravenous Factor 9 replacement. That's the standard treatment currently. Um, but there has been some advances in those products. So the uh, Factor 9 products that we're currently using is um, got a longer half-life than the previous product, so four times as long. So in the past, kids would have needed two injections a week. Mm-hmm. So now they have pretty good coverage with just a weekly injection. So that's getting better. But there are also some subcutaneous treatments uh, and study for haemophilia B as well, but they're not available yet. And, and with haemophilia treatment in general, is this something that they're going to need for the rest of their life or is it something just confined to the, the age that they are as children? Well... Definitely all children, well, the vast majority of children go on to prophylactic treatment. So, you know, kids have um, lots of injuries and accidents and do all sorts of things, um, more likely to bleed. Um, and we want to protect their joints because that's the most common type of bleeding in, in people with haemophilia. Um, so we don't want them to have joint bleeds. We want them to get to adulthood um, and to have nice, healthy joints. So I guess, um, you know, I'm not really involved in adult treatment, but I think because um, prophylaxis for haemophilia has been around for quite a few decades now, I suspect that most adults will go on to continue with prophylactic treatment. But I guess depending on their lifestyle, they might choose to have a break and see if they still bleed. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, the, the adult, there, there is an inevitable drop-off in compliance or adherence yeah. as, as adult patients probably don't look after themselves as well as parents look after children. I right. Think that's, I think that's safe to say. So there is inevitable drop-off. These medications, particularly the newer subcutaneous therapies, are so associated with such limited morbidity. My sense is that it will continue. They will continue to, to have the medication because to have um, uh, injections potentially 12 times per year and be running around with a factor eight level of up to 20% is um, amazing. And it, um, we're, we're fortunate, I think, in Australia to to have the National Blood Authority supporting haemophilia care. It's run through the MBA. Uh, we have strong advocacy from the, the patient groups. And I think suffice to say, Janine, we're, we're very fortunate to be, um, be involved in haemophilia care in 2022 because it is, it is so amazing to see the advances that have occurred over the last 10 to 15 years. It's, it's, it's a real privilege to be, um, to be involved in managing these kids. Yeah, that's yeah, and great. this this new treatment's funded for children and adults. 
um, and for severe and moderate haemophilia. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Just out of sheer curiosity, what happens to an adult that doesn't take on prophylactic treatment? Depends on their joint disease. At the moment, the, the, the cohort of adults will have some joint disease because they've had prophylaxis, but they will have had, had bleed. So they've got early arthritis, for instance. That's a way to think of it. Yeah. And if they're doing any activities, that joint will play up and they'll need treatment. Some some adults burn out. Their joints sort of just become um, brittle and fragile and osteosclerotic and uh, they're not moving that much. So it's not a great quality of life. Right. But but some patients won't give themselves prophylaxis. So I, I think we're going to be we're going to be um, supporting a very different generation of boys with haemophilia in the in the next 10, 15, 20 years that'll have very limited joint disease. And uh, um, haemophilia has changed. It has definitely changed. Yeah, absolutely. Look, many thanks to both of you for taking the time uh, to take us through this new treatment. Uh, it's great to hear there's so many benefits to the patients and families, but also to the hospital system in general, allowing it to run more efficiently through the reduction in hospital time for the patients. It's really a win-win for everyone, to be honest, but it's it's really exciting to just to hear uh, how, I guess, how excited you guys are about the new treatment and that as well, and, and how, how it's really revolutionizing haemophilia. In a future episode, we're going to be discussing the management of bleeds as well, so keep an ear out for this. Thanks very much for the chat, guys. Thanks, Steve. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting.